Okay, there we go. Morning. Okay, we are going to continue uh, in our study of the books of First and Second Corinthians. We're just about done. We are very, very close to being done. Uh, but today we're going to continue on in chapter 12. Now I'm going to give you the brief recap, and I promise it'll still be brief. Uh, but we are in our Address the Mess series over First and Second Corinthians. Uh, this book is really important. These letters were important to Paul. He wrote four of them to the Church of Corinth. Two of them are considered inspired. Uh, this is the second of those two that we're studying today. Uh, Paul developed a close relationship with them because when he helped establish the church, he spent 14 or 15 months living among them and developed these great relationships with them. So he left there believing that everything was going to be fine, and it wasn't. Uh, they ended up getting influenced by the Greco-Roman culture and became very carnal and, and self-righteous and immoral, and so he wrote the first letter. So he stops after writing the first letter to see the impact it made, and yeah, not so much. Uh, they were still uh, in turmoil, and actually they had started to turn on him because false teachers and false apostles of Corinth were trying to take control both spiritually and in the government, and so they, uh, they influenced him to kind of turn on Paul. So the first visit didn't go good, so he left and decided uh, to have a write another letter uh, and try to get everything straightened out before he came back and kind of defend himself against all the attacks on his apostleship and his integrity and his teaching, uh, which is the whole reason he wrote this second letter. Now... Uh, for the last few messages, Paul is at the fed up point. He's at the point where he's saying, okay, I'm done with you. I'm done. And he's talking to the false teachers. And he's like, you want to play a comparison game? This is not pleasing to God. This is not what God sent me here to do. But if you want to compare, I'll compare. Because y what you're saying is a lie. What I've done is true, and Christ has done it through me. So let's compare Christ-inspired actions to your fables that you're telling these people. So he started doing comparisons. He didn't like to. But he was forced to do that, um, and so he had to compare their self-promoting lies to actual real ministry. So today Paul's going to continue calling out those lies and those false, false accusations and false teachers. But today he's really defending the truth. So I, I titled the message Defending Truth. See, that was quick. You have to admit, that was quick. Okay, so let's jump in. 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 11. He says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. One translation says, I've had to become a fool, and it's your fault. I like that translation, but he says, I have become foolish, uh, you yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostle, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Okay, so in verse 11, Paul is basically saying, I'm done playing the fool for you. I've had to play the fool for you because evidently the only thing you want to hear is boasting because that's what's getting these Corinthians in such good rapport with you. So I'll show you some boasting, but my boasting will not be in me. It'll be in what Christ has done through me, but I'm tired of doing this. Now, how is he playing the fool? He was playing the fool because he was comparing himself to someone. He didn't want to do that. He's like, ministry isn't about me. It shouldn't be about what I've done, because everything I've done, Christ has done through me. He's saying, but I did it so that you guys would listen, so you basically made me play the fool. This wasn't something that God wanted me to do. I was just forced to do it to get you to listen to me. I mean, he repeatedly said comparing the boast of the false teachers to his own wasn't right. It wasn't godly. So that's why he felt like he had to play the fool. Now, he said, regardless of all that, no matter what you think of me, I am not inferior to anyone. Paul had a, uh, you know, just because Paul was humble didn't mean that 
he didn't have uh, a self-awareness of what God had done through him. He was saying, listen, I know I'm not inferior to them, especially to them. I'm not inferior to any apostle because those of us who are serving God, the good things we do are him. So there can't be inferiority unless we're not doing what God asks us to do. If you're doing what God says to do, you can't be considered inferior because it's God working through you. So he said, I don't fear that you are looking at me as inferior. That's not what it is. And not even the other apostles, he didn't feel inferior to them. So he's saying, if I don't feel inferior to the other apostles who are doing good things, why would I feel inferior to you charlatans? Why? He said, I don't feel inferior. Then he reminded them of all the miracles and signs he performed among them. Now, the book of Acts doesn't record the miracles of Corinth. There's a lot of miracles in the book of Acts. It doesn't record the miracles Paul performed at Corinth. However, we know from history and from theologians that it did happen, and even secular writings will talk about some of the, uh, some of the uh, miracles and signs he performed. But remember, the Bible can't record every little thing that everyone did, or they would be 2,800 volumes long. So he's saying there was miracles that he performed there. And he said, I performed these miracles among you, and you still don't believe in me? You still don't believe the things that I've done? You still think that these charlatans should be your spiritual leaders? He's like, what else do I need to do? I mean, not only had he performed miracles, he never took any support. None. These charlatans, that were these false teachers that were selling all these lies were looking for power and profit. That's what they were looking for. Paul refused to take any money. It was his right. They should have been supporting him. But he said, I'm not even going to, I'm going to forego my rights to let you know that my motives are pure. I'm here for you. I did those things. That wasn't enough. I didn't take pay. That's what, that wasn't enough. I don't know what you want me to do. And he even got a little salty. If you look at 13 again, he sort says, For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? And this is where he gets facetious. He says, Forgive me this wrong. That was him being smart aleck, what he was saying. Oh, sorry, I was nice to you, punks, is basically what he was saying. Sorry, I was good to you. My bad, I should have been terrible to you. That's kind of what he was saying there. So evidently it was said that Paul treated the Corinthians as inferior to other churches, which is absolutely ridiculous because, if anything, he showed favoritism to the Corinthians. He lived with them for 14 or 15 months. He didn't do that with any of the other churches that he established. Right? Look at all the letters, four letters in total that he wrote in, two we consider inspired, but four in all that he wrote to this church. Right? And what more could he do? If anything, other churches should be saying that. You're treating us as inferior to the Corinthians. Right? But I'd say that the false teachers and the false apostles in Corinth probably started that lie, like they did every other lie. They were probably saying, well, see, the reason he didn't come back when he said he would is because he probably has another church that he likes better. You ever met the pot stirrer? You guys ever raise your hand if you know a pot stirrer. How sad is that? You know, I see them as pot stirrers. They knew they had already got him questioning Paul, so now he's it's open season on him. They can say anything they want. And when Paul said, "I can't make it on this time," he wanted to finish writing this letter. I'll come later. They're going, "Yeah, mm -hmm. you know why he didn't come, right?" He probably spending time with all the people in Galatia instead of you guys. You guys aren't as cool as the Ephesians. That's probably why. That's how that stuff got started, uh, and they were trying to sell that lie, and evidently they were buying. But have you ever, been, if you've ever been in the crosshairs of a gossip, this is going to sound familiar. How many people have ever been in the crosshairs of a gossip? I'd say just about everybody. If not, you must speak to no one. 
That's the only thing I can figure. You know, because gossips love to get attention by always having the latest news and the latest dirt and the latest scoop. You ever met that person? Did you hear about Michelle? <laughs> I'm not saying I know, but, you know what I mean? And they, they know that people want to hear juicy gossip. People want to hear it. So there's always those people that are more than willing to serve up a pot of it, right? And if you've ever been in those crosshairs, you know what it feels like. Unfortunately, gossips generally don't care about facts or corroborating any details that they share with you, right? That's not high on their priority list. You know, I've had people say things to me, literally, I try not to be a smart aleck. This might shock you. It's kind of my nature <laughs> to be a smart aleck. But I've had people come up and say, I know you said that. I'm like, I, I didn't. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I have a very reliable source that says you said that. And I'm like, really? Well, if they're so reliable, why don't they do what the Bible said and come to me first? Why are you telling me and not them? I wouldn't look at anyone as reliable that talks behind someone's back without being willing to say it to their face. So, I mean, honestly, if you've been in those crosshairs, you know what that feels like. Now, moving on to verse 14. He says, here for this third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you, uh, for children, are not responsible to save up for the parents, but parents for the children. Now listen to that again. For children are not responsible to save up for the parents, but parents for the children. I don't like that. No, I'm just kidding. I want that to say, children, start saving now <laughs> to take care of your parents when they're old. Nobody's saying that uh, for children are not responsible to save up for the parents, but parents for the children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls if i love you more am i to be loved less this is there's a lot to unpack here this is really brilliant so notice paul reminded him that he was about to visit them for the third time he's like understand the church that says i don't care about you the church that says i believe you're inferior to other churches the church that i've already visited twice i'm about to come to you for the third time so I love, love, love how he snuck that in there. Basically, he was saying, strange for someone who doesn't think much of you. I spend, this is my third trip there. Listen, I got a newsflash. If I don't like somebody much, I'm just not going to visit them much. You know what I mean? Or at all, right? He's saying, if I didn't like you, why would I be making my third trip to see you, right? And that's probably why he snuck that in there. I'm about to make my third trip. He's probably trying to say, and by the way, uh, right? But that's not all he snuck in. Notice, notice he made this really cool comparison between helping them and raising children. So I think this is kind of a slide they didn't pick up on. It's right over their head, right? Because he goes right into children after he says he's been to them twi uh, two times already and about to make the third time. And it's a great comparison because like children, they thought they knew better than him. How many parents we have in here? Raise your hand. Okay, some of you are saying, I'm ashamed, I'm not going to raise my hand. <laughs> but, listen, if, if you're a parent, okay, if you're a parent, you get this comparison. It's a really, really good comparison. Because there's phases in your children's lives. Okay? From zero to ten, you're the hero. You're a genius. They love you from zero to ten. From ten to twenty-one, you are an idiot. <laughs> you know absolutely nothing. They are smarter than you, and their 12 years of worldview, they figured it all out at 12, okay? Then they go away to college, still thinking you're an idiot. And after that first semester of starvation, 
After that first semester where they have enough money, they just don't know how to manage it. <laughs> so two weeks in, they're going, can you send me more money? I'm like, that was for the month. Yeah, probably should have been. You know, they get to college and they find out something. You do more than they thought you did. <laughs> right, so by the age of 22, they're using you as an example when they talk to their kids. Let me tell you what my dad said. <laughs> right? When they're, when they're like, you know, 11 to 18, they're going... <laughs> You're not going to believe what my dad said. <laughs> you know what I mean? That it's just phases that your kids go through, right? And they were kind of stuck in that second phase is where the Corinthians were, kind of in that second phase. Also, children tend to listen to social media and friends and peers more than parents in that middle section. You notice that? That's generally who the people they listen to. And it kind of gets to me because... You're listening to people who have done nothing for you, who have no investment in you whatsoever. And if something happens to you, they'll just move on and find somebody else. Your parents will be there for you or should be there for you to a point. Just throwing that out there in case one of my kids is listening. But anyway, <laughs> isn't it funny how kids have short memories? Kids have short memories as to, you know, they're sitting there going, I don't like what you do. I'm like, well, the guy you don't like paid for the clothes on your body. How do you like that? <laughs> See those wheels spinning on that vehicle out there? The guy you're so upset with paid for them. <laughs> you guys ever had that discussion? You kids are going, I did not come here for this. <laughs> and parents are going, it's about dang time. <laughs> right? But they tend to have short memories. People in general tend to have short memories. They forget who's really been there for them. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. Paul said the sacrifice that he made by not accepting support, he said, listen, I'm not begrudging it. I'm happy to make that because I care for you. I, I'm, I'm happy to make that sacrifice. Just like parents, listen, we grumble sometimes, you know, but at the end of the day, the sacrifices we made, we're happy to do it because we love our children. Just as long as they get the heck out when they're 18, we're happy to do it, you know, but that's the whole thing is that's terrible. Is my, do I have a child in here? No, just my wife. I'll change that when my kids get here. No, I'm <laughs> just kidding. No, but um, it's kind of funny. They just, you know, they, they, you don't mind the sacrifice. It's worth the investment. But the false teachers the Corinthians were dealing with, they didn't care about them. They had no investment in them. Their talent was distracting them and getting them to question everything. That was their talent, distracting them and getting them to second-guess everything, I mean, making them forget all the sacrifices and love that Paul and his team poured out into them, that's what they were trying to distract them from. And instead, they're, they're making accusations against Paul. Instead of saying, you know, what they should have done was, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, look at all he's done for you guys. Instead, they're going, I don't know, questioning everything the man did. Most of the false teachers in Corinth, uh, history teachers, were successful and powerful before they became false teachers. Uh, and no doubt they probably used that to their advantage because remember the Greco-Roman culture looked big into power and wealth. They thought that was something, you know, and wisdom and knowledge, worldly wisdom and knowledge, the sciences, you know, the stars. They thought people that had that were more important. No doubt these, these uh, false teachers were probably that and they were probably using that, you know, to their advantage. But it's funny how people equate success with spiritual, uh, spiritual wisdom and wisdom. Now sometimes they walk hand in hand, sometimes they don't. But I had a friend, and I really hope he's not watching because he will know who I'm talking about. But I had a friend who worked really hard, and he was successful, and, and I was and still am proud of him, if you're watching. <laughs> I was and still am proud of him. 
But the more successful he got in his field, the more he felt his opinion was more valuable than anyone else's in the world. You ever met the person that will offer their advice even if you don't ask for it? Or the person that will step into a conversation to tell you how wrong you are, and I'm like, well, that's funny. I don't remember saying anything to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, I mean, that's what this man became. So a once strong believer who was joyous and friendly and a blast to be around turned into an angry, argumentative know-it-all who wasn't leading anybody to Jesus. People were running from that guy. But he felt like since he had made it, that he was more important than everybody. He forgot that humility and faith is what got him where he was and that God could take it at any second, and he got his priorities out of whack. And that's what was happening to the Corinthians who were following these false teachers. Right? That's what was happening. These false teachers just felt, because of their Greco-Roman culture, they were better than everybody else. So they were just making statements about Paul and the apostles and just making all these wild accusations, and they just assumed that everybody should listen to them because they're more important. They were successful. And sadly, the Corinthians were falling for it, and it was causing a lot of problems. That's why Paul said, I don't understand why you guys are turning on me. They've done nothing for you except dog me and try to get you away from the Word of God. I loved you more. Should I be loved less because I loved you more? Because I'm taking the time to come and help you? Should you really be looking for reasons to hate me? He's like, I've shown love to you, and what do I get? Accusations, rumors, innuendos. So Paul's starting to get a little worked up here. Now, in verses 16 through 18, you can see that because the salty version of Paul starts to return again. He says, but be that as it may, I did not burden myself. Uh, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you by deceit. In case you didn't notice, that is him once again being facetious. Listen to what he says here. But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you by deceit. Well, we know he didn't mean that literally. I mean, evidently someone had said that he was deceiving them so that he could take advantage of them. And not just any deception. Most historians believe that they were teaching that Paul was deceiving them to make financial gains from them. To profit, for profit and for power. And they said that Paul was refusing his support so that he could lull them into a state of, of, you know, of laxity where they weren't paying attention to what his left hand was doing, right? And they were saying, now, all this stuff about not taking pay and coming here because he loves watch out. That's how he rocks you to sleep. Then he's going to rob you blind. That's basically what they were telling him. They were saying, as soon as you trust him, he's going to take advantage of you. So the, let, let's look at the irony here. So the false teachers who were deceiving the people for money and power, were accusing Paul of deceiving people for money and power. Anybody else find that strange? Uh, that is the quintessential pot calling the kettle black, isn't it? Look, it's okay for me to deceive, but not him. I mean, literally, they, the ones who were deceiving were accusing him of deception. So it's just unbelievable. No wonder why Paul got so salty with them. I mean... I'm surprised that Paul just got salty. I'd like to see Paul put a Jerusalem beat down on him for saying that. You know, wouldn't you think that sooner or later if he was less than a godly man, one of them guys would have got slapped upside the head? Wouldn't you think so? I mean, they were tearing down everything he had built, what God had used him to build. But he just got salty, so I'll give him a pass on the saltiness. Now, to make matters worse, they also implicated Paul's companions. 
which is ridiculous again, in the same deceptive plot, like they were doing the same thing. So Paul reminded them of the integrity of the comparisons he sent to be, or, or of the companions he sent to be with him. So if you look at verse 17, he said, Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? See, none of Paul's companions took money either when they went to Corinth. It was well known among the apostles, don't take money. Because they are waiting on their perch to say you're only doing it for the money. Don't give them any reason to say that you're not doing it for them. Don't take money. So none of them were taking anything. So these false teachers evidently were accusing them also. What they were doing is systematically trying to eliminate all truth in Corinth. That's what it comes down to. They were trying to eliminate any avenue for them to get the truth of God's word in Corinth. That's what the false teachers wanted. Because they wanted to be able to take advantage of the people without any interference from real men of God. So that's why Paul challenged the Corinthians to judge the character of those he sent. Because they didn't take support either. He said, judge them. What did they take from you? They're here and gone. I guess that plot didn't work for them, huh? Because they didn't take anything from you. He said, judge that for yourself. Rather, the opposite was true. They selfishly gave their time and resources as well as brought resources to Corinth. They were accusing them of taking when... The apostles were bringing them money and resources. See how powerful these false teachers were? They had them forgetting about all of that. But again, too many people have short memories and forget the people who are really there for them and what they've done for them. But that happens when, man, when you start listening to man over God, you'll notice a shift. When you start trusting man over God, your attitude changes. You become more selfish. You become more self-centered. You become more greedy. Why? Because that's what the world is apart from God. You know, the winner's the one that dies with the most toys. That's what the world says. In my opinion, the winner's the one who trusts Jesus. Not the one who dies with the most toys, because when you die, somebody else gets to play with them. You know what I mean? Think about that. But that's the mentality. That's what happens when you start following it. You know, those things are the traits, greediness, self-centered, selfishness. Those are the traits that reflect the attitude and nature of the enemy, not God. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, here is the attitude and nature of God. Here's the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, what? There is no law. Funny, that verse, Paul wrote that. He was dealing with legalists. I wish he would have thrown that in that book, too. But he was saying there's no need for legalism when you really have the fruit of the Spirit because you're going to do what God wants you to do. The fruit of the Spirit reflects the attitudes and the nature of God. Now, deceiving people for uh, profit and power through deception is nothing new. It's been around since the garden. It's always been there. That's why the Bible warns us of the importance of personally knowing the truth and understanding that we are in a battle. Look at this, Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. You know, something we don't see is the spiritual battle going on around us, right? But when you see those leaders, you're wondering, how can they even say that? How can they, do, how can they bring that kind of policy into our country? Have you ever thought to yourself, what are they thinking? Anybody ever thought that when you're watching the news? They come up with a new law, and you're like, what? What are they thinking? And what we don't realize, they're being influenced by a higher power, and it's not God. 
There is spiritual wickedness in high places, some translations say. Meaning, they're being influenced, the rulers, the leaders, are being influenced by demonic influences. That's what's making them do those things. There is a battle going on. It's not us against them. It's humanity against the enemy. That's what it is, right? And so the enemy, like the Corinthians, would lo- or like the false teachers in Corinth, would love nothing more to, to, than to remove all avenues of biblical truth in our society. And I don't know if you notice that he's trying really, really hard to remove all semblance of, of biblical truth. That's, I mean, that way believers are a lot easier, you know, to deceive. They're better targets when they don't have the word of God and they eliminate the word of God. It's easy to deceive them. That's what, why Paul told the Ephesians uh, in, in that same chapter I just quoted uh, to put on the armor of God. Now, we've heard this a million times, but look at verse 13 in Ephesians 6. He says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to what? Stand firm. So this is about standing firm. Verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, okay, having put, the breast, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. I would love to explain every one of these. You know, I would just love to. Okay, I'm going to. Um, <laughs> have your gird loins with the truth. When they would gird their loins, they had this belt that everything hooked to. The armor for the legs, the upper armor, everything attached to that belt around the loins, right? So what did everything attach to in the lives of believers? Truth. Truth is what is at the root of everything. And it says, uh, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the reason we're protected from hell once we believe is the righteousness we have is not our own. It's Jesus. When you get to heaven, they're not going to go, Chris, you killed it. You're here because you're the man. When you get there, it's going to be because they see the blood of Jesus applied to your life. So the reason that we can't be destroyed after we believe is our vitals are covered by the righteousness of Christ. Like a breastplate covered by the righteousness of Christ. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, uh, shodding their feet just meant that they were putting, basically covering their feet so they couldn't be harmed in battle. Uh, but the gospel of peace is what was supposed to keep you moving forward without fear, knowing that you have the gospel to share. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which with you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. When you get a a grip on faith, a lot of the attacks from the devil don't work. You know what I mean? Have you ever felt like, if you ever feel like the enemy's after you, have you ever felt that time where you're going, okay, what did I do? I'm not important. Why is he after me? I've literally said out loud, Lord, there are people out there who are reaching millions. I'm a nobody. Why does the devil pick on me? You ever feel that way? But when you start understanding the power of faith, when people make accusations, when the enemy attacks you, you just hold up your faith saying, I know who I am. I know why I am the way I am. It's because of Jesus. So nothing you do or say matters beyond this world. I am protected by the shield of faith. That's what he's talking about when he talks about the shield of faith. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The helmet of salvation protects us ahead. It reminds us that we are redeemed, and nothing can change that. And the sword of the Spirit, the only defensive weapon mentioned here, the word of God is all we have to combat the enemy with. That's why I list it that way. I could go deeper, but I won't, but that just gives you a gist. So notice that every piece of this godly armor is founded on the truth of God's word. So all the enemy has to do, if he wants to destroy this country or this world, all he has to do is to convince people to avoid hearing the truth or knowing the truth. 
right? He tells us we don't have time to read. Anybody ever fall for that? Have you ever said, and I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but have you ever, have you ever came home from work and you're like, God, oh, I should do my Bible study tonight, or I should read, I don't know, I'm just too busy tonight. I, and Lord understands, and then you go turn on Survivor. You know what I mean? Think about it. Think about it. I'm guilty of it. It's happened to me. I'm just saying, but he tells us we don't have time to read. Here's a big one. He tells us it's outdated. It's outdated and untrustworthy. You ever heard that? Well, the only reason the Bible says that is that was their culture then. Believers have said that. Okay, let me toss something out there for you to chew on. Okay? How can you say you believe in a God who doesn't have the ability to foresee the changing of time? If God is too stupid to know what's going to happen in 2023, I don't want to serve him, do you? That means he's human like me. And you say, I can't believe you just said that. I said that because my God's not stupid. I know the Bible isn't irrelevant. Our passion may become irrelevant, but the Bible is not irrelevant. I wouldn't want to follow God that didn't know all things. Fortunately, ours does, right? But here's the deal. That's part of the plan also. The, another element of the enemy's plan is to humanize and demean God. Humanize and demean God. Because if we make God more like us instead of becoming more like God, then we have the power to create our own religion, don't we? You know, we make God like us, so now, since he's thinking like us, he likes what we're thinking. So we start creating our own religion that's more sensitive to our sinful nature and desires, that's more caught up with the times. See, that is such a trick of the enemy, and I can't believe we still fall for it. I mean, today we still even have false prophets actively working at every level, even in high places. The things you're reading or studying in Corinth, you think, well, I can't believe that happened. It's still happening. It's still happening everywhere. I mean, we have false teachers in our education system, and I am in no way blasting teachers. They're not paid enough, and they do a tough job, and they have to deal with irreverent kids, and it's a love for kids that keep them doing it. So I'm not bashing educators, but I am saying I am bashing the educational system a little bit here. Because we allow things in there that we should never allow. And Christians don't say, that's terrible, because you sat on your hands and let it happen. Okay? We've allowed things to be brought into the school that should have never been there. We should have stopped it when the seed was planted, ripped it out of the ground, and thrown it in the trash so we wouldn't have a field of it growing all around us. We should have stopped it. Right? It's in our education system. It's in our court system, or lack thereof. You know what I mean? Can you believe that they're actually making laws that says, ah, let's just let people out, no bail. Yeah, that's because they're not the one that got mugged. That's why they come up with that rule, right? You see how this is working in high places uh, in our government. Do I have to explain why our government has wickedness in it? I mean, I think that's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? I could have anybody in the room stand up and say, why do you think the government's evil? And you could tell me. You know, I mean, I don't think it's anything to be shocking that the government's involved in it. But here's what's really sad. It's even in religious leadership. Sad, sad. There's too many, too many churches and pastors out there that are more worried about the money and the fame than they are the gospel. Right? So I've seen it. Trust me. Their plan is the same as the false teachers. The enemy's plan and this world's plan is the same as the false teachers in Corinth. They want to make us question our faith and our morality. And they want to shame anyone who opposes that. You ever notice that? They will say, They'll call something that shouldn't be called good, good, and if you dare question them, you're evil. They demonize people who question them, demoralizing our country. They demonize them. I, I don't understand that. 
And people go, well, I don't want to be shamed. Shame me. It's better than having God against me. You know, it's funny. I'm, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. Um, Kevin and I were just talking about this. I'm bringing you down with me. Um, <laughs> we were just talking about this. There's all these people out there bashing Israel right now. I'm going to tell you something. That is stupid. You are, have the right to your opinion. Don't stand close to me when you talk bad about Israel. Okay, look in history what's happened to people that stood against Israel. Look at that, real close. God said he would preserve them. Okay? I wouldn't say anything against Israel for no other reason than I don't want a lightning bolt singeing me to the ground. When people start talking bad about Israel, I'm going, okay, I'm going to go over here because I don't want the <laughs> lightning to hit me too. Why would you do, why would you do that? I don't, under, I don't understand. There's no justification for that whatsoever. We'll get with that here in a minute, right? But today, what happens is modern technology has made it easier to poison the minds of the world. And I'm not that guy that says there's no good use for modern technology. There is. I mean, I'm a, I'm a gadget nerd myself. I got stuff all over the place. I'm not saying there's no use for it. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying it does make it easier. And here's something that might offend you, and if so, suck it up. But... Because social media is so readily available and so influential, parents need to start parenting again. Okay, parents need to start parenting again. Instead of letting TikTok and Instagram and Twitter or X or whatever it's called, right? You shouldn't let them raise your children. It's your job. It's your job to raise your children. Instead, you let your kids sit in front of a stinking phone. I, look at, I go out to dinner with my wife, and I look over and see a family, and they're all faces glowing looking at their phones when they're at family dinner. You know what I mean? It just makes it easier. You don't have to chase them down and do anything if they're, you know, looking at TikTok videos. Right? They behave. They go sit by themselves. What are they listening to? What are they watching? Why do you think we have young people out there in our college campuses losing their dang minds? Why? I mean, kids on college campuses paying 70 grand a year saying that they want to cut the heads off of people. That's higher learning. Isn't it? You know what I mean? Listen, you have got to realize something. The enemy's plan is smart because in it, he can help mold the minds of our children. All right? He can help mold the minds of our children. All the while, we stand by saying, oh, it's just harmless fun. Anybody that stands against that's an old fogey and just doesn't want to be up with the times. Really? Have you watched it? Have you wa I don't have TikTok. I mean, I'm not saying one way or another. I just don't have a desire to support China. But anyway, I'm just saying... There's nothing wrong with it. People can do it if they want. That's fine. I'm not against, per se, against it. But I know I have looked on social media before, and you can just scroll up, and they have all kinds of reels and stuff going that have nothing to do with you that usually are filth or some political hack or somebody saying something against God. We don't look at that. They are trying to change the minds of our children while we stand by and look at it as harmless fun. I'm not saying social media can't be used for good. I'm not that guy, but it definitely needs to be monitored. When I was growing up, my parents knew what I was watching on TV while they were looking, but they knew what I was watching, right? And believe it or not, they told me if I could go to that movie or not. The nerve of them. I remember when I was 12, I wanted to see a rated R movie. My mom looked at me like I grew two heads. What? Did you just ask to go watch Blue Lagoon? If you're our age, you know why we wouldn't watch that. <laughs> I'm like, what? It's just about a lagoon, Mom. You know what I mean? <laughs> she knew 
what I was watching. That's called something, here, I'll just give you a simple word, parenting is what that's called, right? But I'm not saying social media can't be used, but the easiest way to sway a nation is to take control of the future of the nation. And like it or not, the future of a nation is its youth. That's the future of a nation. And I'm terrified when they get in control if something doesn't change. I love all you young people. Don't take me wrong. But I am scared to death of what's going to happen when we become TikTok nation. Okay? Anyway, I'll leave you with this question before I move to the next passage. Do you know what your kids are looking at on their social media? There are apps for that. Okay. I'm off my soapbox. But I'm storing it and reserve the right to use it again. Okay. 2 Corinthians 12, 19. All this time, you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your uplifting, beloved. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to not be what you wish. Basically, what he's saying is I'm afraid I will find you in a condition that hurts me, and I'm afraid they're going to have you turn so much against me that I'll be a letdown to you. Okay, that's what he was saying. Um, let me see where I was at. Okay, that perhaps there will be uh, strife, jealousy, uh, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Sounds like an elder meeting. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Okay. <laughs> Verse 21. I'm afraid that when I come again, uh, my God may <laughs> humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many days of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. So Paul closed this section by reminding the Corinthians that his fears, he had some fears about his next visit. See, the reason behind Paul's defense is not because he gave two shakes about them judging him. He's like, I don't care what they say about me. He said, I'm not making a defense to them. He said, I'm making a defense to you so that you can see that God is working through me and not through them. The only person I have to worry about judging me is God. That's what he's saying. Not them. I want you to understand, I'm not trying to get in good with them when I make this defense. I'm trying to get your mind right and get you back to following me, and which is following Christ, right? So Paul knew that the only judge he had was God, not humanity. But it was difficult to write this letter for him. It was difficult. But he wrote it out of concern for them. He didn't want to have to come to them again like he had just done and find a mess. He said, I want to come next time and actually be happy with what I found. That's what I want to find when I come next time. Right? You know, like a good father, he's saying, I, I'm hoping to fix these things before I have to discipline you. Right? When parents, when you tell your kids, don't do that, there's a reason. Right? If you say, listen, I don't want you messing with that stuff. It's not because we don't want you to have fun. If we say, don't play with electricity, it's probably because we don't want you shocked. Right? It's kind of the same thing. If we see something, a place we don't think you should go, it's not because we're trying to make you unpopular. We know more about that place than you. That might shock you, but 51 years trumps 14. <laughs> Throwing it out there, right? So I'm just saying that that's one of those things he was saying. I just, I would, like a good father, I would like you to listen to what I'm saying and make the appropriate changes so that when I come, I'm not a letdown to you and you're not a letdown to me, which is kind of a nice way of saying you were a letdown to me last time. Right? I don't want to see that happen again. And like any good father, no father wants to discipline his children. Okay? That's one of the things. And if you're that person that likes beating your kids, you need to check yourself into a facility. 
You know, if you're the parent who likes to, you know, likes to bully your kids, check yourself into a facility. You need help. Okay? But I know, me personally, I hated it when I had to discipline my kids. I'm an empty nester. And by the way, for those of you who fear that day, it's awesome. Anyway, <laughs> throwing it out there. But don't fear it. So anyway, when I, was, when I had my kids in the house, I remember... <laughs> I'd go, please don't do that when they were little. Please don't do that. I, I don't want to have to spank your butt. Please don't do that. They're going, oh, you spank your kids? Yep, and they don't talk back. Anyway, <laughs> they turned out okay. But here's the thing. I'll never forget. I would have to run and hide after I discipline a lot of times because I'd be bawling. Nobody wants to hurt their kid. I'm a, I've probably told you this, but I'm going to tell you again because I have Alzheimer's. Hopefully you do too. Anyway. Um, when Kelsey was little, she was still in diapers, but she was walking, and she, I don't, I don't know, she was probably 13, I'm just kidding, <laughs> no, but she was playing with this plug-in, and I walked up, and I said, no, honey, don't play with that, and I would come back again, and she had it partially pulled out, so where the prongs were showing, and I go, honey, you can't play with that, put that back, and I put it back, and I turned, I walked back and looked at her, and she looked at me like this, and goes, That was her saying, who's in charge here? That's what that was. That's the old sin nature. And I walked up and swatted her on the diaper. It wasn't hard, but it shocked her because it was the first time. And she started crying, and I picked her up and carried her, and then I ran the bathroom and cried. <laughs> yeah, because I'm a tough guy. <laughs> See, no parent wants to discipline their kids. He's saying, I don't want to have to come there and discipline you again. The last time I was there, it stunk. I want to come there and find that you've actually listened to the word of God and allowed it to change your life. And if you allow it to change your life, it'll change other people's lives. And if it changes everyone's life, then it might change your city, your country, your world. That still applies. You know what? If we start listening to God and teach our children to listen to God, it trickles down and eventually it will change everything. Right? It will change everything. I have people say, well, I'm going to let my kids decide. Then you are in trouble. You are in trouble. If you let your kids decide, they would have marshmallows every day for lunch. <laughs> I want my kids to make their own decision. Great, then let them have pizza for breakfast every day. That just means you're lazy. Okay? Here's the truth of the matter. Teach your kids the truth. Live the truth yourself. You want to see change, make it start with you. Right? That's what the Apostle Paul was saying. Listen to what I'm saying. Let it change you, and in turn, it'll change everything. Okay? I want to come and actually enjoy you is what he was trying to say right now so he's trying to reason with them ahead of time now really quickly the eight sins paul mentioned are the just the core attitudes of what happens to a church that's gotten off track that's involved in disunity and division uh, the three sins of verse 21 are all the result of lax morality that spiritual disunity causes see the legalistic leadership they had people think well if it's legalistic why would they have any sin going on in the church legalism generally walks hand in hand with immorality you know why? Because when you let man make the rules, they're going to make the rules to suit man, not God. And inevitably, even in churches, if there, is, if, the, if there is a governing body that cannot be questioned and can do whatever they want without the Bible as their guide, before you know, immorality will creep in. Legalism breeds it because it leads the church, I mean, to the wiles of man. And it can't be that way. So that's why Paul was pointing that out. Um, but... The sad truth is, is, you know, that's just what legalism does. But Paul wrote this letter hoping that he could build them up and get rid of the legalists and, and let them see 
let them see the false teachers for what they really were. Now, we have one more chapter. I'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. If you're not sure where you stand or you're just struggling with something, I don't need to know, but I want to pray for you. So while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people, and I am going to pray for you. Bless those people. Bless those people. Bless those people. If you're watching or listening online, God knows your heart. But believers, I have really, I have a burden. The more I study the current, the more I think about us. Somebody's got to stand up and say it starts with me. And if enough believers stand up and say it starts with me, we're going to see a big change. We need believers to stand up and say, I'm not going to complain about the kids. I'm going to try to reach the kids. I'm not going to complain about the addicts. I'm going to try to help the addicts, love the addicts. I'm not going to complain about the people who are in jail. I want to visit the people in jail. Every one of us should have been there at one time or another. We need to start with a mindset that says, if change is going to come, it's not going to come through me whining. It's going to come through me first. And that's my big prayer is that we all go home and say, Lord, it needs to start with me. So where do I start making it better? And maybe it'll just be a domino effect. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your love and your kindness. I thank you, Lord, that you've given eternal life to anyone who would believe. You knew we wouldn't be good enough. And you knew that none of us had anything in exchange for eternal life. We couldn't be good enough. We couldn't, we couldn't be righteous enough. We couldn't give enough. We can't even change until you change us. But I thank you that you loved us so much that you just offered free eternal life. We don't have to change anything. When we come to you, you'll make the changes that you need. So I just thank you for that, and I just pray for someone here who doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, just remove it. Because if people could see the love that drove you to the cross, they'd run to you. I just pray that if they make that decision today, that they contact us. We want to walk with them in their spiritual journey, God. But for those of us who are believers... God, give us a passion to stop whining and start making changes beginning with us. Bless us have the spirituality and the maturity to look in the mirror and take that person apart. Judge that person. Because when we change that person, God, I believe we can change the world. Give us the passion to do that very thing and to love people like you love us. And I just pray, God, as we leave here, you would keep us safe and let us live what we profess. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you the praise that you're so worthy of. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.